find myself wanting to dance to that music. I actually found myself dancing to that music, and I kind of want to invite you to stand up and join me. Let's, let's hold off on that. Maybe, maybe someday, all right? Welcome to Grace. All of you at Saratoga, boy, horse racing is about to happen, isn't it? I mean, it's just right on us. It's, it's exciting time in Saratoga and in the whole Capital District uh, for so many reasons. Those of you at Half Moon, thanks for joining us today and being with us. Those at Latham, those online, we're so glad that we can be together like this and, and look into God's Word. Well, we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. I hope you know it's the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached. Um, and I kind of, in my mind, imagine that as they were walking up the mountain, you know, it happened on a mountainside, according to verses one and two of chapter five. I imagine the disciples were talking about, hey, what is Jesus gonna say today? And I think they were excited, filled with anticipation. He's, he's gonna rock our world. He's, he's gonna blow our minds with what he said. He's like a new Moses, you know, He's laying down some really radical stuff, and I, I, I kind of envision, it's just my imagination, you know, James turning to John and going, I just know that we're gonna walk off this mountain today with some of the laws abolished. I mean, with any luck, we'll, instead of 10 commandments, we'll have six when we get finished with the day, and I know which ones I would like to be gone, let me tell you, all right? Now, imagine their shock when they hear this out of the mouth of Jesus. Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And by the way, that designation, law or prophets, even though there was another section, the writings, which includes the wisdom literature, the Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, those five books. Really, most scholars believe that he's basically saying the whole Old Testament here. Don't think I've come to abolish that, apologize for that, say, oh, that's awful. We're about to get a new teaching now. No, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen. He's referring there to the Hebrew language where there are little marks beneath some of the letters will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then what in our text is verse 20. This, this, is, this is a shocker. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. My guess is that was the most discouraging word they had ever heard in their life. How? Their jaws must have dropped. How could we be better than the experts? I mean, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were maniacal 
in the way they kept the law. How could we ever be better than that? Jesus, how can you possibly call this good news? Well, that's what I wanna explore with you today because I believe today's message, if properly understood, is one of the most liberating messages you will ever hear. And particularly, if you're here today and maybe you're kind of religious and you believe that, that going to heaven one day and being right with God is all about your performance and that alone, that you've gotta be good enough to make heaven and I believe there are millions who are laboring under that assumption in America, then today may be the most liberating day you have ever had in your life. Because it all begins with a genuine and growing relationship with God. So with that as a foundation, let's dive in now. I wanna talk about the why, the what, and the how. Just a simple outline, the why, the what, and the how of the law. First of all, why did God give the law in the first place? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, why give a set of laws that nobody's been able to keep? If you make goals in your family, you know they're supposed to be SMART goals, right? And, and one of those points in the acronym SMART is attainable. They need to be attainable, right? Why would God give Moses a set of laws that no single human being in all of history except Jesus has ever been able to keep? Why would he do that? This is super important, by the way, whether you're a believer right now, not a believer, wherever you are on your journey with God or exploring God, what I'm about to say is hugely important. Here it is. God gave the law to reveal the moral character of God. Well, I, I want you to note that. Note it well. You see, God wants his followers to be like him. And if we're going to be like him as people created in his image, we need to understand what God is like. By the way, that's why one of the most important things about you, if not the most important, is what comes into your mind when you think God. God wants us to reflect his character in, in all the ways that we can be like him. Now, I can never be omnipotent. I can never be omniscient. I can never be omnipresent. So not all the qualities of God can I ever attain, but in those communicable attributes, they're, they're called, of God, things like holiness, kindness, mercy, love, those kind of things. I can be like God to a degree in those areas. And in all the areas we can be, he wants us to be like him. So uh, let's talk about the law. Some of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments. Let's take the law, you shall not steal. Well, why should I not steal? I mean, is it because I need to respect the principle of private property? Well, that's one reason. But the primary reason I should not steal is because God is not a thief. And God wants us to be like him. So since we're created in his image, he wants that to be seen in us. He wants us to be chips off the old block. Then do not steal. Don't be a thief. Or what about the law? Don't bear false witness. Don't. Lie, why should I not lie? I mean, my goodness, a lie is an ever-present help in time of trouble, right? I mean, yeah, gee, 
Why should I not lie? Is it because it sets in motion a pernicious web of deceit and all that and I'll spiral down? Well, those are secondary and tertiary reasons. But the main reason I should not lie is because God never lies. In fact, Scripture says he's incapable of lying. Incapable of lying. God cannot lie because it would be a violation of his character. God is a truth teller. If we're gonna be like God, we don't lie. I hope you're getting this. Let's go on with a couple more examples. How about the law, don't commit adultery? By the way, man, this series is gonna be so exciting. We're gonna be talking about murder and adultery and stuff like that in the coming weeks. I don't want you to miss it. I mean, it's gonna be amazing. We're gonna talk about sane sexuality, just in the next few weeks, there's all kinds of relevant topics to our lives, but I think in a sense, today kind of sets all that up. Don't commit adultery. Why shouldn't I commit adultery? I mean, it's pretty fashionable today. Is it just because I will create all this relational damage and all this collateral damage with the people involved and create all kinds of emotional and relational and psychological pain. Well, yeah, that's true, but that's a secondary reason I shouldn't commit adultery. The number one reason I shouldn't commit adultery is because God is faithful to every covenant he makes. And as a person created in his image, God wants me to be like him. So don't commit adultery. One more example. Do not covet. Why? Why? Why should I not desire and long for someone or something that doesn't belong to me? It's because it will make me a discontented person and I'll always have these longings inside of me that may not be fulfilled. Well, that's a secondary reason. The main reason I should not covet is because God is fully content. He is satisfied. And as a human created in his image, I'm supposed to be like him, so don't covet. I hope you're getting the idea. So the why of the law should be very clear. It is to reveal the moral character of God. And by the way, the reason the moral laws never change is because they are rooted in the very character of God, and God does not change. If you want a big word for that, it's the word immutable. That's what the theologians use. It, uh, us sane people say, he doesn't change, okay? So immutable is the big word. God does not change. It's actually one of his attributes. So since that is true, let's quickly go on to the second question I wanna ask. Not only the why, but then I wanna ask, what was the law meant to accomplish this is closely related to the first question. Paul makes an interesting statement in Romans chapter seven. Here's what he says. I would not have known what sin was except through the law. What, what in the world does he mean I wouldn't have known what sin was except through the law? Well, imagine this. Imagine you've got a bow and arrow and you're out in an open field just having a great time shooting these arrows. And you pull back the bow and you feel the tension, you feel the muscles ripple in your arm and you let that arrow fly. And there's, there's a surge of exhilaration as the arrow flies through the air. And, and you do that day after day just because you enjoy archery and you fancy yourself as a pretty good archer. 
And you go on thinking that until one day, one day somebody shows up and spoils your fun. Somebody brings a target out there. And they say to you, you think you're a pretty good shot? I wonder, let's see if you can hit the bullseye. And you confidently pull back. Same bow, same arrow, with the same tension, the same technique you've been using. And up till now, you've been having a grand old time thinking, I'm pretty awesome. But now someone has spoiled your fun by setting up a target. And the mere presence of that target reveals the fact that you're not as good as you thought you were. That's how the law functions. The law is the moral target God has given us. By the way, if you're familiar with the Greek language at all, the word hamartia, which is the word for sin, means literally, this is the etymology of the word hamartia, it means literally missing the mark. So that illustration of an archer is actually a pretty apt illustration. When we sin, we're missing the mark of what God has given us. So, Romans chapter three, verse 20, through the law we become conscious of sin, it says. Now, the law doesn't make us a sinner. It doesn't make us a sinner. We simply become conscious and aware of the fact that we're falling short of God's standard of righteousness, that we're missing the mark. By the way, just as a little footnote, I'm tempted to hang out here for like an hour. But that's one of the reasons that every leader, every theologian, every Christian I know agrees evangelism is more challenging in a culture like ours. You know why? Because many people don't even know what the mark is, what the target is. You see, I remember when I was a very young teenager and I was so convicted of my sin, I had not yet repented and not yet yielded my life to Jesus Christ, but I knew what the target was, baby, and I knew I was falling short. I knew I was really missing the mark in thought and deed and attitude in every kind of way, and I was miserable over the fact that I was missing the mark, and I knew I needed a savior. I'm not sure a lot of people in our culture know they need a savior. As Ted Turner famously said, I don't need anybody to die for me. Sorry, Ted, you do. Because you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. And we're all missing the mark. That's why it's essential that we know what the law is and know the standards and be aware of how sinful we really are. And when we see God's standards, we realize the fact that in and of ourselves, we are dismally failing to reach those standards. And so that's what the law was meant to accomplish. It was there to reveal the moral failure of human beings. And to show us that on our own, we simply cannot do this. We cannot meet this standard. We cannot be holy and godly. That's why Paul made that statement in Romans 7. I would, have known, would not have known what sin was except through the law. That's why Paul 
also says in Galatians 3.24 that the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The King James Version says the law was our schoolmaster, our supervisor, to lead us to Christ. Because when we compare our lives to the straight edge of the law, we see how crooked we really are. And I realize, wow, I am a lawless person, and so are you. You said, oh, wait, oh, 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 pastor, you just went too far. I am an upright churchgoer. I love my family. I love most of my neighbors. I, I am a sweet kind person. You just went over the line there, Pastor Rex. I am not a lawless person. You break the law every day. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3, everyone who sins, no matter what the nature of that sin is, big, small, in between, thought, deed, attitude, no matter what the sin is, everyone who breaks the law who sins, breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So one thing we know is that every time we sin, we are literally violating the law of God, and in that sense, we are lawless people. Now again, let me just say as a footnote, many people in our culture don't want to accept the Bible's diagnosis of our problem. They want to avoid that. They want to dismiss that. Oh, I'm not perfect. I have a few hangups. I'll admit that. But it's really no big deal. I'm not that bad. You see, the brilliance of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus drills down beneath just outward appearances and he gets to the core of the matter. And Jesus teaches us here that moral rot, and we're gonna see this over and over and over again in the messages to come as we look at passage after passage. Moral rot begins on the inside. It's not just what we do, folks. God is looking at the motives behind what we do. And just a reminder, it's one of the most staggering, sobering statements in the Bible. One day, God is going to judge and evaluate not only our actions, but the motives behind the actions. Why we did what we did. And so Jesus says, it all begins. A relationship with God, a saving relationship, begins when we face our utter poverty of spirit and acknowledge that we can never hit this mark. It's hopeless if we're left to ourselves and then we really turn to God for the cure. So that's the why and the what of the law. God gave it to reveal the moral character of God and the law was meant to accomplish this, to show us our human failure and to show us that we are simply incapable of being righteous on our own. The good news of the gospel always has to begin there, by the way. I wish it could all be positive. I, 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 I some. I sometimes, you know, wish we could just all never say anything that was negative or challenging, but we can't because we have to tell the truth. And that is the truth about human beings. We've all fallen short of the standard, of the character, 
of the nature of the glory of God, okay? So now, the third and final point I want us to consider, how does God actually fulfill the law? Jesus said, I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So how does God do that? Well, before we dive into this last point, I I wanna tell a little story that I think will help set it up a little bit. A young man was out of work, and he was trying really hard to get a job, so he would go down to the employment office every single week and ask what job openings they had, but there were no suitable jobs available for him. This went on for months, folks, and so he became quite discouraged over time. But one day, when he entered the employment office, the director met him all excited. He said, man, I've been waiting for you. I think finally, after all these weeks and months, we have a job that is something that you would love to do. Down at the local zoo, the gorilla has died. And they can't get a replacement, so they've asked us if we could find someone who would be willing to dress up in a gorilla suit and play the part until, you know, until they can get the real thing. By the way, the job pays well, and as soon as we heard of the opening, we, we thought of you because you kind of had the physique for it and everything, and being out of work for so long, you're definitely highly motivated. And so the guy agreed. He agreed to give it a try. So he put on the gorilla suit, and every day he would stand behind the bars of the gorilla cage and he would kind of scratch himself in the right places as people came by and kind of look beastly and pound his chest real hard, you know, at times and let out some grunts and eat a few bananas and even learn to flick some peanuts up in the air and kind of catch them in his mouth. And the visitors to the zoo just thought it was the real thing. And as the weeks wore on, though, he became bored with this. And one day he noticed that above his cage, suspended high above, there was this like sort of trapeze-type bar suspended up there that would swing back and forth. And so in his boredom, he learned to swing on that bar a little bit, back and forth. He did it with his hands, and eventually he he could kind of do it holding on with his knees and his legs. And, and, And then one day... He got so good, he swung over with his hands, he let go, did a somersault, and caught the bar with his knees, and he would swing back and forth, up and down. I mean, the crowds loved it. They went wild because they had never seen a gorilla do such things as this. Well, one day, he was swinging back and forth. He goes forward, he lets go, he does a somersault, but he misses the bar. And his momentum propelled him right over into the cage of the lion. Now, a real gorilla wouldn't be all that scared, but he was terrified. And the lion let out a mighty roar and began to approach him ready to pounce. And the lion growled angrily as he backed the man into the corner. And the terrified man was about to let out a scream when suddenly the lion said, shut up, man, or we'll both get fired. Now, I tell you that for a little comic relief in a message that's kind of content heavy, but I tell you that also because it makes a point. You see, some people believe that the Christian life is a little bit like that. They do. Watch this. 
They believe you put on your Christian suit, you scratch your Christian itches, you eat your Christian bananas, and you try to be something you're not. That's what they think Christianity is. You just fake it till you make it, baby. You just try to be something you're not. But that is not what Jesus is teaching here. So what does Jesus mean when he says in verse 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What is he really saying there? I think he's saying this. I'm gonna show you under this new covenant that I'm bringing how to make these laws really work in your everyday life. Now this to me, friends, is where this message gets really excited because the Christian life is not, mark me, it is not a matter of pretending to be something that we're not. It is God fulfilling the law in and through us as he literally changes us from glory to glory into his image. That's the Christian life. And by the way, God told he was gonna do this hundreds of years before Jesus was ever incarnated into this world, hundreds of years before the Holy Spirit was ever poured out to abide in the, in the lives of the disciples. For instance, way back in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was one of the great prophets of God who prophesied in the 500s BC. God gave a clue of how he was gonna deal with his people in the future. This, this is one of the most pivotal verses in all the Old Testament. If this verse, Christians, if you, if you still have a real Bible and it's not just all electronic, if you still have a copy of, the, of a Bible that's actual hard copy, I want you to prick your finger and bleed on this verse, okay? I want you to mark this verse well. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, translate that, all true followers of Jesus in the future, after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. God says to Jeremiah, look, there's gonna be a future era when I inaugurate a new covenant with my people and I'm not gonna abolish or rewrite the law Watch this, I'm gonna relocate it. This half missed that, so let me see if this half can get it. I'm not gonna abolish or rewrite the law, I'm gonna relocate the law. Up till now, it's been on tablets of stone or on scrolls, but in that future covenant, I'm gonna relocate it. I'm gonna write it on your minds and on your hearts. And that's the game changer of all game changers. That's how God's gonna fulfill it. It's gonna be an inside out job. Now, in case that wasn't clear enough, he adds a little more clarity through his prophet Ezekiel. Watch this now, Ezekiel 32, verse 27. And I will put my spirit in you. He's speaking now of the future new covenant to come, which we're now living under and which started, Jesus inaugurated this, and on Pentecost, it really kicked into gear. 
I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, Jesus said to his disciples, look, my spirit is gonna be with you and he's gonna be in you and I'm gonna move you. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna move you to keep my laws. One other passage. Go with me here. I know it's a lot of scripture to kind of digest all at once. But the same thing is taught then in Romans chapter eight, verses three and four. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful. In other words, the law could show us what was wrong with us, it just couldn't change us. It didn't have the power to transform us. The law couldn't do that. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. In other words, Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the penalty that our sins demanded, and so he condemned sin and sinful man. In order that, in order that, here we go, the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. What the law could not do, Paul says, God did, by sending his own son in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice, it does not say fulfilled by us. It doesn't say that. It says fulfilled in us. And that preposition is hugely significant. They're gonna be fulfilled in us. How is that gonna happen? because God's gonna give us a righteousness, not our own. And then, by his spirit, he's gonna actually start changing us from the inside out. So the big question today becomes this. Are we living according to the spirit's guidance as believers? If we are, the requirements of the law will be met in us. For instance, do you have a problem stealing? Under the new covenant, you won't, as long as, as long as you're led by the Spirit, because the Spirit never steals. Do you have a problem with lying? Well, under the new covenant, you won't, as long as you're led by the Spirit, because the Spirit of God never lies. He's a truth teller. He cannot lie. Do you have a problem with adultery? Well, under the new covenant, you won't, as long as you're led by the Spirit because the Spirit of God is always faithful to the covenants he makes. We could go on and on. So the question is for us, have we received this righteousness of Christ by faith? Have you? And are we living according to the Spirit's guidance? That's how God fulfills the law in us. So let's look at it right here on the screen. We receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. That's what we mean by being born again, born from above. That's what we're talking about when we challenge people to repent of their sins and receive the finished work of Christ as the full payment for their sin. That's what we mean by that. God gives you his righteousness at that point. He imputes it to you. And we live according to the Spirit's guidance. 
So, why is Christian righteousness greater than Pharisaic righteousness? Because it's a righteousness that God gives you through the new birth. It's an inside out job. It starts in the heart, in the inner person, and then it goes from the inside out. And that's how the new covenant works. And folks, that's the most liberating thing in the world. Because you start from a place of victory. The Christian life is not about trying to be good enough to please God. It's acknowledging you never can and that God meets you right there and he gives you the righteousness that you could never attain on your own. And then he also gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit himself in you to begin to change you from the inside out. You say, now, pastor, wait a minute. Does that mean we can be perfect here? I don't think so. Some have said that. I don't think it does mean we can be perfect in this life. But watch this. We are supposed to be getting better because he's doing the work from the inside out. One final verse. 2 Corinthians. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is a freeing thing when you get this concept today. It's one of the most liberating things in the world because you're no longer on the treadmill of performance. Oh, I've got to try to keep this law, which you never will. No, it's an inside out job. I'm already declared righteous. Woohoo! God's already saved me. I'm already working from a point of victory. Now, anything that God does to change me is just like a bonus. It's wonderful. And I want to change because he's inside of me, motivating me. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness. You're becoming more like Jesus. You're becoming more like Jesus. You're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. That means degree by degree. It doesn't happen all at once. It's incremental, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Notice the verb tenses. He doesn't say you were transformed into his likeness. It doesn't just speak of a future thing, which is also very real, but it says you are. It's present, continuous tense. So how do you measure spiritual growth? Can, can I share with you? Is there more evidence of the character of Jesus this year than there was last year? Am I more like Jesus in the way I treat my spouse? Do I show more of the character of God in the way I handle my finances and my research? That's a measure of spiritual growth. Am I demonstrating more of the character of the Lord in the way I relate to people and so on? That's how real growth is measured and God is changing us from the inside out. <laughs> Deb and I were talking through this sermon this week and I was telling her kind of where I was headed with this and getting feedback from her and input and and I said, you know, hon, you know, Deb, one day I'm going to be perfect. She said, it'll take heaven for that. And she's absolutely right. One day, if you're a follower of Jesus, I got news for it. You're going to be perfect one day. But in the meantime, 
It's a fumbling, bumbling, oh, I feel the pain, oh, I feel the challenge of this as God changes us from glory to glory. So here's the bottom line. Jesus said to his disciples, I've not come to apologize for this law that you've never kept, not at all. I've not come to do away with it in one little bit. I've come to fulfill it because the law has its function and it's still valid and it still stands. It's to reveal the character of God and it's to show our human inability to keep it. But as the spirit comes in you and you receive this new birth, I'm gonna be restoring you degree by degree into the image and character of the Father. That is the glorious Christian life, and that's what we get to do together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, we rejoice in that. We celebrate the fact that you are changing us from the inside out. Oh, we're not there yet. We're far, far from perfect. But as we keep fumbling along, as we keep looking to you to change us from the inside out, God, I ask that we would be so in tune with your spirit that literally the law would be fulfilled in us because you're giving us the motivation, the desire, the power, and the want to. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen, amen.